guest today is Sean Coyle. If that name isn't familiar to you, you're in for a treat. Because if I was picking my ultimate fantasy sales team, Sean would be my very first pick. Now, I say fantasy team because I couldn't afford him. He's that good. I have witnessed him firsthand making cold calls to complete strangers. And his ability to get people to relax and open up and engage is just second to none. Today I'm fortunate enough to be joined by the man, the legend that is Sean Coyle. Sean, I'd like to share with our listeners a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what, what were your interests as a teenager going through school? What were the kind of things that, that got your attention? So go, going back that far, my interests were vastly different in many ways than the interests today. Uh, where I'm from, uh, where I've spent uh, the majority of my 46 years on this planet is uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, that's, that's Western PA. Um, many people would probably recognize uh, more readily the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, I was going to say, go Steelers. That's right, go Steelers. I, I, I believe uh, even in Dublin, I found uh, a location that uh, celebrates the Steelers. So they travel very well across the world. Well, in fact, you, you may be aware of this, but the owner of the Steelers was the U.S. ambassador to Ireland at one stage. Mr. Rooney himself, that is I, correct. I got to meet the great man. Oh, did you really? That's, that's, that's cool. He's, uh, they're a great family. They run a great organization. And uh, I think it's you know, evidenced in the results over the last uh, 40, 50 years. Yeah. So I guess that, if you'll pardon the pun, that, that, that experience steals you for uh, a disappointment in life, really. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> prepared you well. It, uh, it, it, it prepared very well. Um, so obviously, as a child, a teenager, even a young adult and a middle-aged adult, you know, Steelers are always something that we get our kicked off of. Uh, you know, as, as a teen, Paul, uh, I was actually more motivated and more interested in uh, comic books. And uh, as I got older and got into uh, college or university, um, my intent was actually to become a comic book uh, artist and a, uh, ultimately a comic book publisher. And uh, that did not work out greatly because as I graduated school here in, in Pittsburgh, um, I, I looked at the landscape of career opportunities in comic book publishing and that did not exist in this city. And I had to move somewhere else. And the reality was at that time, moving was not plausible as I was engaged to, uh, you know, now my beautiful wife of 22 years and she was not leaving Pittsburgh. So she said, find a job or don't marry me. And I figured uh, finding a job would be easier than finding another version of her somewhere else. So I had to go out and find a job. And uh, what I ended up doing was, uh, uh, you know, taking some advice from, from some people that uh, I was asking for help. And they said, Sean, you seem like you're moderately good with people. Uh, par parenthetical, not true at all. Uh, I wasn't good with people, but uh, they said, why don't you try sales? And I didn't have much of a knowledge of sales or what it was other than my naive perceptions watching television and movies. And, uh, you know, salespeople always seem to be dynamic and outgoing and successful and traveled the world and that was appealing. And uh, my first sales job actually, uh, actually was my only one of two sales jobs before I got into Sandler, uh, was working for a, a clothing manufacturer by the name of Tom James Clothing. And uh, what they did was sold suits door to door to busy executives. So 
a lot of picking up the phone and making calls, a lot of walking around and driving around town and uh, meeting with lawyers and business people and physicians. And, you know, what appealed to me about that was they kind of hooked me on the idea that if you succeed, you get to travel to the Caribbean and you get stock in the business. And we get to turn you into a sales manager. And I paid attention to all that stuff. What I didn't pay attention to was what it meant to succeed. And, right. Um, I simply remember my first day showing up excited to have a new suit and new tie and new shirt and meet new people. And, and my first boss sat me down and said, well, son, you got to start making some calls to set up appointments. And I think I missed that part of the interview process. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I wasn't sure what he meant. And I said, explain. And he said, well, here's a book of names and uh, just start making phone calls into those phone numbers. And uh, I said, well, unfortunately, I don't know any of these people and I don't have my own book yet. He said, well, that's <laughs> these are cold calls. Have at it. And so he handed me a script, as most managers do for a salesperson on their first day of the job. And I went back to my little desk and I sat down and for the next four hours, I made seven phone calls. Wow. And that, that may seem like a lot to many people. But, uh, <laughs> in between those seven phone calls, I introduced myself to the other salespeople. I offered to run to the mailroom a few times. I checked the fax machine. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, I was checking it routinely on the off chance somebody might fax me something. Uh, I, uh, Filled out all of my pre-hire paperwork. In fact, I did it twice just so I could have neater handwriting. And I think I got my social security wrong once. And uh, it felt like a very busy, tiresome half day. And uh, right before I broke for lunch, I decided I'm going to make an eighth phone call. And that person actually picked up the phone. And uh, I butchered my way through an introduction. And at the end, he stopped me and said, hang on a second there, what company was it again that you're from? And I reintroduced the business as Tom James Clothing. And he said, oh, I recognize the name of that company. And I remember feeling this great sense of warmth and pride that somebody finally had heard of the company I worked for and wasn't going to have to go back to my parents and tell them I was working for a scam artist. And he said, uh, yeah, I know, I know Tom James. In fact, a number of years ago, I bought some suits. And I can't remember the salesperson's name. He may not be with you anymore, but I spent about $3,000 on two suits. And I began to feel even greater happiness because I thought, wonderful, sales guy's not here. Maybe I'm going to get my first sale before uh, my first day's over. And, uh, and then it sort of fell apart at that point. He proceeded to share with me that he never got his suits. He never got a discount. He never got his money back and uh, proceeded to... Uh, extend a number of expletives towards me over the phone, ultimately hanging up. Um, Ouch. You know, right there at about 11.59, I walked into the back alley of the building where our office was, and I proceeded to vomit in that alley. And uh, Literally. You're not, you're not speaking figuratively here. You literally threw up. I literally threw up in the alley. And if anybody joined, uh, comes to Pittsburgh, give me a call. I'll show you the spot. <laughs> Oh. And what was that? Was that just a realization you were in deep in a situation you didn't know how to get out of? Or was it the rejection? What was it? Uh, I think it was probably a combination of all of those emotions plus uh, a, a memory or a recollection of what my parents used to tell me when I was growing up. And, uh, and many of our parents may have said similar things, but they told me things like, uh, don't talk to strangers. Uh, only speak unless spoken to. Don't ask so many questions. Good little boys and girls are seen but not heard. 
And I think all of that came to me subconsciously. And, and I just remember thinking, how am I going to do this every single day? And I think it just hit me like a ton of bricks that I wasn't sure that I'd be able to. Yeah, you realized you were in hell for the first time. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I thought I had had a perception of what hell was, but uh, it wasn't even close. So how did you get out of that? I don't know that I ever did. Uh, I think I found a way to surprise it. And uh, I, I, I probably credit uh, consistency as a means to suppress it. I have credited uh, the ability to be a plagiarist uh, as, as a means to suppress it. And, you know, certainly over the last 19 years, Paul, as perhaps you can even attest to, I, I can certainly give Sandler a lot of credit for helping me suppress it. Um, those feelings are never going to go away. Uh, they probably, in some form or other, based on a situation, present themselves to me daily. So uh, what did you learn, though, that helped you cope with them better? I think a couple of different things. I think one is, and, uh, you know, if I can use uh, our success triangle, behaviors, attitudes, and techniques as the framework, I think one of the things, um, and it took me time to learn this and really maybe uh, create the analogy around this. And in fact, I may credit Mark McGraw many years ago for helping me shape this analogy. But I think what helped me cope with it was this concept of the world we all prospect into, whether we're in the Sandler training business, whether we're in manufacturing, pharmaceutical, financial services, construction, the world we prospect into is a large, a transparent globe, not too dissimilar to a gumball machine. And so when I walk up to a gumball machine, I know there's red ones and orange ones, and blue ones and white ones and green ones and you know, all these different colors. And I know they're in there and I can see them. Mm. That's um, just for people who don't, who are not familiar with the term, we'd call that bubble gum. We call it yeah, a bubble gum machine. Right? Yeah. And, and you know, as a child, we all probably had our favorite color. Uh, mine, Paul, was a green gumball. And when I walked up to a bubble gum machine or a gumball machine, I knew that there were green gumballs in there because I could see them. And I would cross my fingers, I'd give it a little kick, uh, I'd put in my coin, I would turn the dial, but I also knew that I couldn't guarantee a green one would come out. And every once in a while, I'd get the orange one first. Well, I didn't like the orange ones, I didn't like my little brother, so I'd hand him the orange one, and I'd put in another coin, and I'd turn the dial again, and out comes a blue one. Well, I didn't understand the blue ones fully, and I'd, I'd throw it in my pocket maybe for later. They knew if I kept turning the dial, eventually a green one was going to come out because I could see them. I could also see the orange ones and the blue ones and the white ones, and I knew they would come out too. And I think the way I began to help, you know, begin to cope with more effectively was understanding that that's how we should prospect. The goal of a prospecting call from an attitude perspective isn't necessarily about placing pressure on myself or my prospect to make them have an appointment or make them become a client. I think the goal of that prospecting call is simply to use the conversation as a means to determine what color gumball am I dealing with? And then based on that color, act appropriately. And now, I, 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 sorry to cut across you. I, I love the, the concept of that. It certainly helps with understanding the process and conceptualizing the, the focus that you have to have. And also to be able to say, oh, look, that's not for me. How does it help with the, the fear, the discomfort, the social isolation, fear of rejection type of thing? 
Yeah, so if, if, I, if, if I keep the parallel tight or the analogy live, um, think about walking up to that bubblegum machine or that gumball machine and, and, and think about how you feel when it spits out an orange gumball. Well, that wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. It certainly wasn't the machine's fault because it didn't uh, you know, start the day as a machine planning to make sure I didn't get my green gumball. It certainly wasn't the gumball's fault or the bubble, you know, the piece of bubble gum's fault. Uh, you know, the green ones didn't move out of the way to allow the orange one to come through first. And so uh, I think that helps when we, when we think about our prospects like those pieces of, of bubble gum. It, it's not my fault that you're not for me or I'm not for you. It, it's not your fault that you're not ready to be part of the conversation around the product or service that I'm selling. Uh, it, it, it's not uh, the marketplace's fault because uh, what I do doesn't fit into your business model. So I, I think if we can extend that analogy to the point where we say the gumball machine is my marketplace, the gumballs are my prospects, and, and I'm always me, the, the guy or gal turning the dial, it's nobody's fault when the green gumball doesn't come out. And I think that's what helped Paul. Yeah, I, I can see that. And in fact, for, for people listening to this, I, I can attest to it as well from your perspective, because I don't know if you remember the time that you took me to your hotel bedroom and then you proceeded to make cold calls. In fact, for people listening, just the, 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 the context for this was that we met in the lobby of a hotel and you were telling me about this new software you're using. And you said to me, as if it was like, would you like to get a coffee? You said, would you like to go make some cold calls? Come on with me. And went to your room, you opened up your laptop, you set your software in motion. But there was a couple of things that amazed me about it. Was One was, I, I have seen people, and I've been that soldier too, is where you gotta make a call, you, 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 you're busy getting ready to get ready. That was one thing. Or you felt that you had to research this particular prospect to death so you'd know their entire life story. And what I saw you doing was basically just, the, in fact, the machine, who, whoever answered, that was who was put through to you. It, you didn't choose, you didn't pick up a name and say, I will call that particular person. You, you had a database, it, it dialed them, and when they answered, it spat it out to you. So the only thing you had was their name, title and industry. But what, what amazed me was that whether they engage with you or not, and, and, and they all engage with you at some level, and we'll talk to how you did that momentarily. But I remember the first one was, there was nothing there. And the second one, you steer the conversation around. You know, at, at initially, there was nothing there, but you steered it around, shifted the conversation and got an appointment. But from your posture perspective, in both instances, it was identical. It was, and the first one was, yeah, you know, well, not for us. And second one, possibly for us. And it was just so matter of fact, there was no ego involved in the conversation. Your emotions weren't attached to whether you succeeded or not. In fact, I guess the, the success was just making the calls, not whether they said yes or no at the end of the call. And I don't know if you remember that, but that, would that be an accurate representation? 
Well, I'm glad you clarified which time it was that you had, I had invited you to my hotel room. So it was, because it, it, was, it, it, it was, yeah. And, and so now that's the one I can remember the most. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's an accurate representation. Uh, it, it's quite possible, Paul, that you saw uh, an actor that day, but I think that's also part of prospecting is we kind of have to act our way through certain things. Uh, you know, I, I've done this, uh, I, you know, what, what you experienced, I've done with individuals, I've done in groups of individuals. You know, many times people are kind enough to, uh, to, to come to me and, and, and you likely were as well, to say, holy cow, I mean, I saw nerves of steel there. And uh, the reality of it was, you may have seen it, but that wasn't reality. Uh, there, there's still apprehension, there's still conflict, uh, you know, uh, there's still head trash, but I think we also have to get into a role. And when that phone goes live, my role is to simply use the conversation as a means to assess what are we going to allow nature to do next? And if nature means you hang up on me, hang up on me. If nature means you want to continue the conversation and ultimately schedule time, then continue the conversation and schedule time. If uh, nature says that, uh, hey, you're not ready to schedule time now, but maybe sometime in the future, that's okay. I, I don't necessarily want to fight you on it. I may want to gain some clarification on that. I may want to offer some alternative suggestions. But, but I think at the end of the day, it's not how you feel when you sit down to behave and, and do these activities. It, it, it's, it's how you act. And so, you know, maybe I was showing off that morning, Paul. Maybe I wasn't. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know I remember that, but I do know that I did turn that machine on and I did play a role. And the role was to simply uh, execute my responsibility to talk to as many people that would be willing to talk to me and follow the structure of the way we teach people to make a prospecting call. You said something that I, I, there's a light bulb gone on in my head and you said, it's not how you feel, it's how you act. I had always interpreted that as in, it's not how you feel, it's how you behave. And, and again, there would be nothing wrong with that, that is true too. But I think for the first time, I've interpreted the act differently. That it's not just a behavior, it's also an act. That you're taking your own ego, your own self out of the equation. And this other person, it's almost like a third party sitting there or standing there making these calls. Then that's an act. It's not you. It's something else. Yeah, think of the word. I mean, it does have double meaning, right? Mm. An act is, you know, a physical behavior. You know, the act of picking up the phone, the act of saying certain things. That's an act or an action. But to act as a verb is to assume a role. And uh, I, I think that is a purposeful double meaning. Uh, yes, the saying the rule is don't let the don't let you know the way you feel dictate the way you behave. Uh, let the way you behave dictate the way you feel. But I really think it is uh, don't let the way you feel dictate the way you act. And act mm -hmm. being both versions of that verb, uh, physically uh, taking an action as well as playing a role sometimes outside yourself. Um, now. A question I've always wanted to ask you because uh, you do this for fun though, at least that's my, my perception. And that, again, listeners won't know this, but one night in Dublin some years ago, I saw you play a game 
I saw you play a game called House Cathy. I'll just tell our listeners a little bit about that. So we're in O'Donoghue's pub on Baggett Street uh, with some business acquaintances. And I, I don't know how we came around to you were telling me maybe this, this game you used to play. Um, and and the, my question, I guess, is did you play this game originally to get you outside your comfort zone? Did you do it out of a sense of bravado? Did somebody put you up to it? I'm curious to know your motives originally. But the game was that the next person who walks through the front door, and this isn't a crowded bar. Next person who walks through the front door, you're just going to walk up to him and you're going to go, hey, how's Kathy? And they're going to look at you bewildered. And if you know, whoever blinks first loses. <laughs> and and I, I would say the majority of the times people would end up saying something like, oh, you, you, mean, you mean Kathy Murphy? Yeah, yeah, she's fine. And you get into this conversation with a complete stranger about some nondescript or, or some, some avatar called Kathy. So I, I'm, I'm curious to, to know what was the original motives for that game? Was it practice? What, what was it? So I, I think, uh, and, and, and I do remember one time that uh, I learned the lesson not to play the Who's Kathy game in Ireland. And uh, <laughs> there, there is certainly, uh, uh, well, we can get to that story if we have the time. So uh, any silly game, any stupid game, which we could probably all agree as mature adults here at this time of the day, um, you know, as a genesis and probably a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of some Guinness, perhaps. And so I, I think the original uh, genesis of the game was probably that sense of bravado. Hey, I bet I can get into a conversation with anybody out of the blue uh, based on the fact that most people likely know somebody named Kathy. And uh, so I think there was a sense of bravado, but it did migrate into something that helped um, with confidence. Right, to, to be able to walk, as an example, uh, I was raised uh, and, and I continue to raise my children under the idea that when you see somebody that uh, uh, is in military uniform or has some indication that they were in the military, uh, I was raised to approach that individual, complete stranger, extend my hand and thank them for their service. Uh, I am, uh, Paul, a natural introvert painfully introverted, in fact. Uh, when given the option to uh, be in a group of people, I would prefer to speak to myself, and at times I even ignore me. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable in crowds, I'm not comfortable in strangers, and so you could imagine that when my parents were, would regularly encourage me, and really probably not encourage me as much as direct me to extend my hand and make eye contact and thank someone for their service, it created such emotional turmoil for me. And I even found myself pretending to not see people in uniform or with the having something so that I could just avoid the conversation. Uh, and uh, to this day, uh, I do it, but I find it still uncomfortable. So the Who's Kathy game was a means to maybe gamify this idea of getting outside of a comfort zone and being comfortable talking to strangers and and doing so in such a way that it was lighthearted, there was no ill intent behind it. But it's funny, what happens is interesting things result from that. Uh, everybody knows a Kathy. Hey, how's Kathy? 
and in doing so, playing the role of somebody who's familiar or might recognize that other person, uh, they kind of look at you funny as you say, oh, you mean Kathy so-and-so, oh, she's doing great. Oh, Kathy so-and-so just got married. And, and you know, you, you end up having an extended conversation with a complete stranger in a you know, relatively harmless manner. And uh, you know, nine and a half times out of 10, I come clean and say, hey, listen, I appreciate you chatting with me. Uh, we were playing a game and people get a good laugh out of it and you shake hands and maybe you've made a new acquaintance. I certainly learned the lesson that uh, you know, those in Ireland are a little bit more savvy than perhaps those in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I think the first person that uh, I played the Who's Kathy game with in that club uh, looked me straight in the eye and say, don't try to pull that one on me, son and just turned and walked away. So he must have known about the game uh, from prior uh, experiences. It might, it might have been the American accent. It could have been the American accent as well, but I think uh, maybe, the, maybe the, the bigger lesson there is, you know, find ways to get outside your comfort zone yeah. and have some fun. Yeah. And, and it also means have some fun when you're making prospecting calls. Because again, if I go back to my analogy of a bubblegum machine, they're fun. There's nothing bad about any color gumball that comes out. Have some fun. Yeah, but there's a lot more to this, and, and just dwell on it for a moment, because I had Scott Lease, Lease on a podcast a couple of months ago, and he told me that one of the things he does to push the boundaries of his own comfort zone is that when he's going through an airport, he will attempt to walk through the, the fast lane without a fast lane pass. Sometimes he gets stopped, sometimes he doesn't. He says, if I walk with confidence, 50% of the time he gets through it. But he says, inside, he's, you know, his stomach is churning up, he's uncomfortable, but he does it just to practice getting uncomfortable. And I think also the house Kathy is probably a more fun way of, and, and maybe less, <laughs> there, there may be you know, less in terms of consequences if you get caught <laughs> with a fun game. But I think that nonetheless they're important. And I think also it's important what it demonstrates, and, and maybe this will lead us on to a discussion on actual prospecting calls for those people who make them or those people who know in their heart and soul they should make them, but they don't. They keep sending emails. I think there's a lot more to it because when you approach you know, most people with this house, Kathy, straight away there's a, some sort of inference that, oh, do I know this person? I must know them. They wouldn't have walked up to me like this. So therefore, let me see, could it be Kathy? And they start thinking. So you're actually directing their attention to their own internal database of Kathy's whom they know. They never question the fact, or very rarely, the first guy probably did, as you said, but for the most part, the majority, and that's the game you play in sales, the majority don't question do I know that, you know, where, where have I met you? It's they start straight away into this, who's Kathy? Because I must know them because of how you approach them. And that's what, you know, we, we know is that pattern interrupt. It's, it's not how people normally approach strangers. It's different. And that's something I've noticed you do a lot on your prospecting calls. And in fact, there's one that you use that I've never seen anybody else use which is you use silence as a form of pattern interrupt. When, when somebody picks up the phone, you say, hi, Sean, hi, Sean Coyle. And, and then you stop and you wait for them to respond. Sometimes they respond with, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, who's this? Sometimes they go, oh, hi, Sean. But 
but but they they respond they engage and if and if they struggle you rescue them so it's like it's like you're creating this tension in the moment and silence creates that tension which then you then then it's released either they move into the space or you open up the space and allow them to move in by rescuing them. But either way, you create this tension and then resolve it. And that's not something, I, you know, I've seen you do it in calls and, and other people who are really good at doing this, but it's something that exists everywhere. It's in movies where, where a great director or actor will create a, a tension in a scene and then it's resolved. It's in music where certain, you know, you get this drop in music where it's built up, built up, built up, and everybody is just waiting for it, and then it drops. And it's, it's a thing of beauty when you see it because it completely shifts the tone of the conversation and the barriers just disappear. Maybe you could talk to our listeners a little bit about your experience with pattern interrupts where you learned it and how you've applied it and what you find works best for you. Sure. It's interesting, Paul, that you say the word tension and, and I, I would actually go in a much different direction than that word. Um, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I view things as an ebb and flow. And uh, there's a back and forth, there's a give and take. And, and I think you've described that in all of your examples in music. There's that ebb and flow, that build and that drop. Uh, in movies with great directors, there's that back and forth, and that's what draws the audience in. Mm. And I really think prospecting calls, sales calls, sales conversations, need to have an ebb and flow. They're a conversation. There should be a back and forth. I've heard many, many thousands probably of people make calls over the years. And I think the common mistake is they jump right into it. They're going fast. They're trying to pack as much information in as a short period of time as possible. And if I use your word tension, I think that actually creates tension because the person on the other side of the phone is just wondering when they're gonna stop. Take a breath, give me an opportunity to participate. And, and, and I think, you know, slowing things down and realizing that it's your inherent right, if not responsibility to make a prospecting call, if we stay on that topic, um, is also your inherent right to kind of slow things down. It's your responsibility to engage in a conversation. And so it took a lot of practice and a lot of time to get to the point, Paul, where I want to start every call with good morning, Paul, Sean Coyle, and just hold that beat because I have to give that prospect the opportunity to, to start to connect dots. If those dots are connectable, you know, you talked about the, Hey, you know, you know, how's Kathy? Well, that opening question is a pattern interrupt in and of itself. As you said, you know, the common stranger doesn't walk up to you and just ask you a random question. Uh, it implies a connection. And I'm not necessarily saying that the connection exists between me and every single prospect, but I don't want to assume that it doesn't. And so I want to imply that connection. I want to imply a back and forth. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to trigger your defense mechanism. I want to start the call with, hey, Paul, Sean Coyle, Sandler Training. I wanted to just take a moment, see if we could find some time to get together after I, you know, I, I don't want to, it's too much, too much pressure. People have to, you know, listen too intently. What I want to do is understand that there's an ebb and flow to this. And that ebb and flow starts with pauses. Good morning, Paul, Sean Coyle. Pause, pause, pause. 
Uh, yeah, Sean, what can I do for you? Uh, Paul, I have to assume my name is probably completely meaningless to you. Well, I wouldn't say meaningless, but certainly unfamiliar. I figured as much. Tell you what, why don't I take a second? I'll tell you the reason why I'm reaching out. If we think there's no value in another conversation, no harm, no foul. If we think there's some value in a separate conversation, maybe we take an opportunity to schedule some additional time with each other. Right? So it's pattern interrupt to an upfront contract. There's a natural ebb and flow to that conversation. So, you know, I hope for the audience that makes a little bit of sense that, you know, we started the conversation. So in some, uh, in some cases, it's our responsibility to manage that conversation, not control it, but I think manage it and guide it. And I think we manage and guide it through, you know, the, you know that ebb and flow. But I noticed something else, Sean, when you make calls, there is, there is that, there's the ebb and flow, but there's also a posture. I think you called it an, a, a voice of authority or a, you know, an authoritative tone. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So, uh, you know, again, I come back to a core psychological principle behind uh, you know, the power of Sandler and it's uh, you know, the, 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 the concept of our ego states. We work off of three primary ego states, parent, adult, child. Uh, you know, the parent has, uh, you know, two basic uh, flavors, if you will. There's the critical parent, there's the nurturing parent, right? The critical parent is setting the rules and the guidelines. The critical parent says, see what happens when you run at a swimming pool. That's why the sign says no running at a swimming pool when I fall down. You know, the nurturing parent picks me up, gives me ice cream, puts a Band-Aid on my boo-boo. Uh, we've got the adult, uh, and the adult is really that, uh, you know, we're, we're seeking equal business stature. We're seeking between ourselves and our prospects, that adult-to-adult -adult relationship. We're on a similar playing field. We're unemotional. We're collaborative with each other. There's also the child ego state, and the child comes in the adaptive or the rebellious child. The adaptive child always acquiesces. The rebellious child fights back. Many selling interactions begin as a dysfunctional interaction. Many, most of the prospects come to the equation as the critical parent. You won't sell me. You won't convince me. You'll do it my way. Many salespeople come to that equation as uh, an adaptive child. Uh, I need help. I need commissions. I need to close. I need the appointment. And, and obviously what we're trying to do through the Sandler process is get to that equal business stature adult to adult. But sometimes... You know, we cannot, we cannot attack our prospects and go critical parent versus critical parent because that becomes a fist fight. But sometimes we need another version of the parent, which is what I would call the authoritative parent. And the authoritative parent carries the tone of confidence. It doesn't carry the tone of aggression. It simply says, let's do this. I'd like to suggest we move in this direction. And so the critical parent isn't asking for permission as much as making statements. And so if we think about, again, in the tone, you know, you, you hear a slower pace. Good afternoon, Paul, Sean, Coyle, pause, pause, pause. Paul, I, would, I have to assume my name is completely meaningless to you. That's not a question as much as a statement, but it implies that I ask, I need you to respond to that. Well, it's not meaningless, but it is unfamiliar. Paul, I figured it might be, let me do this. I'll take a moment, tell you the reason for the call. If we find zero value in another conversation, certainly no harm. If we think there's value in a separate conversation, perhaps we'll take some time to schedule another meeting. That's not asking for permission, that's simply setting the stage. Because if we're calling at a high level in an organization, if we're calling on decision makers, 
we need to imply that we are of equal stature to them. We're not asking for permission because I find when I ask for permission, uh, I have variables introduced. If I hypothetically walked into uh, a scenario in my home where my 13-year-old son, my 11-year-old daughter, and my 9-year-old daughter were hypothetically duct-taping our four-year-old border collie to a ladder, <laughs> I wouldn't ask them what they were doing because it's evident and the dog's agitated. I wouldn't ask them if they felt the need to stop because I knew they wouldn't because they, they were having fun and would likely take me hostage. I would simply tell them to stop it and then step back and assess the situation because quite frankly, I wouldn't have known if it was the dog's fault or not. So, so I think that authoritative tone, not about assuming control as much as managing a situation. Yeah, it's very hard as well to not fight back against that is, is, is the wrong word, but react in a negative way because it's so matter of fact, it, and that in itself is different to 99% of certainly calls that I hear, which are asking for permission. It's like that child approaching a parent and saying, may I have an ice cream? And if the parent's in a good mood, they might say, sure. But if they're in a bad mood, they'll kind of say, no, no, you know, come back later. And now, now you're leaving it to chance. So I, I, think, I think there's something in that. And maybe that's also part of the act. I, I don't know. How, tell me about your journey and, and, and how you got to that point. I'm going to assume that it wasn't always like that for you, where you had that authoritative approach, that posture in, when you approached strangers. And if not, then at what point did you discover it? And what, what did you have to overcome in yourself to get comfortable with it? Sure. I, I mean, boy, that's a, it's a complicated, probably in-depth, you know, question. I think uh, no, the, you know, the authority, the authoritative voice exists in everybody, uh, and, and I think one of the things that we have to think about for ourselves is where do we use that authoritative voice, and we're unaware of it. Uh, you know, do do we do we teach children to do certain things a certain way? Do we coach? Uh, athletes, uh, are we a manager and uh, you know need to direct activities? So I, you know, you know, have we you know ever been the leader of a band? You know, I think we have to kind of look back in our lives and really find, perhaps even subconsciously, where we do assume the role of that authoritative parent, where we don't find the necessity to have to ask for permission. And you know, again, you know, sales is that emotional roller coaster for many salespeople. And you know, when you when you still, you know introduce the variables, ask for permission. I think the most common mistake salespeople make, Paul, is they start every prospecting call with, "Did I catch you at a bad time?" Right? Which 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 is the inner child, you know, feeling guilty for interrupting a prospect. And we've already introduced the first variable to the conversation: "Did I catch you at a bad time?" Well, 99% of the time, I know when you ask that question first, you're a salesperson. So yes, you have caught me at a bad time, even if I was sitting at my desk with my feet up drinking a cup of coffee. And so I think we have to avoid tactically introducing those variables. Uh, again, I think part of that is going back into our own lives and where do we play the role of an authoritarian? You know, where, where, do we, where are we in control? Is it at a charity meeting? Is it at a board meeting? Is it at a sales meeting? You know, where, where do we feel most empowered to guide people and guide people without permission. You know, you talked about the child walking up to the parent and uh, you know, saying, may I have an ice cream? 
Well, if the parent's in a good mood, perhaps the answer is yes. If the parent's in a bad mood, perhaps the answer is not now. And we are rolling the dice. But imagine how taken aback you might be if that child came up to you and said, I'll be having an ice cream now. <laughs> I have to let that one slide every once in a while because it's unexpected. Yeah, it's and, true. And, okay, maybe you will be having an ice cream now. Uh, maybe I don't have access to other information where mom said you can have an ice cream now. Yeah. And I'll take it. question that? And I'll take it in the lounge, please. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to know, by the way, have you ever had in when any classes you've trained where you introduced that concept of, uh, I've got you at a bad time, and that, that not being a, the, the best way to open a call because it invites the prospect to, well, it, it triggers that, uh-oh, sales call alert. And you'd have somebody in your class say, well, it works for me. Have you ever had that? And if so, how do you deal with it? Boy, have I ever. And, and uh, you know, I, I think, I know you have, Paul. Otherwise, you hadn't, I wouldn't have asked the question. I know we all have had that. Um, here's my opinion. Uh, if what you do is working, and the way you do is working, and it's working at a higher rate than perhaps expected or from others, don't stop doing it. Because I think what that means to me is you have perhaps an innate ability that I've not mastered the, the way to duplicate. And so if, you know, when I, when I ask somebody, how are they doing? And Paul, you know me, you've known me for a long time. Uh, it comes off insincere for me because the reality is I don't care. <laughs> now I may care someday but I certainly guarantee you that if I'm making a prospecting call to a complete stranger, I don't care how they're doing. Mm. And so I can't be sincere when I deliver that. And even if I act sincerely, it comes across sincerely. I think if people are genuine and, and you know, feel as if they're not triggering that prospect's salesperson alarm, my advice has always been over the years, don't change what you're doing if it's working more than how it works for others mm. or if it works more than you ever thought it would work. Mm. Works, I, I, I do question though when people say it works for me. I think that that needs to be unpacked and what they mean by that because what I see is, yeah, sometimes it can because they have the authoritative voice with it and they, they, they can pull that off and they don't necessarily know, they, they think it's the words rather than the tone. It, it can be that. But sometimes it can be that they're calling very low in an organization and they're, or they're calling on somebody who's just happy to talk to somebody. Uh, or, or the other one, which I guess is one that you see is most prevalent is, you know, how are you today? I'm fine. What's this about? And so, yeah, the other person responds, but it's not necessarily from a productive place. So how do I know it works better than everything else? Well, I have to look at my results. And if I'm earning out earning everybody else by two to one, then yeah, I know it's working. But just because I'm getting people in conversations doesn't mean it's working. I mean, would that fair or am I too harsh? No, I, I think it's completely fair. And, and I think that, you know, and, and that's why I, 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 I kind of present that uh, to an audience. If it's working, it's working. And, and if you're out earning, you're out earning. And we can't argue results. But I think that gives the audience an opportunity to truly reflect. Is it really working? Am I being honest with myself? Or am I creating a means by which I can creatively avoid change, creatively avoid doing something that perhaps, get me, perhaps gets me out of my comfort zone? 
And so rather than coming right to an audience and challenging their comfort zone, I let them challenge themselves by simply answering the question. If it's working more than you think, if you're out earning more than you, you, you thought you could, don't change. But that's up to you to decide. And that's up to you to be honest with yourself in those you know, deep, dark places in the brain. Mm. Makes sense. Sean, unfortunately, we are coming up against the clock on this. I do want to ask you a final question before I let you go, is if you were able to give some advice to 20-year-old Sean, all 26 years ago, what, what would you tell him? I think uh, a couple of things. Uh, I, I would certainly say uh, ask for more help and ask all the time. And in asking for help, be open to advice, suggestions and change, criticism, uh, and more importantly, uh, be open to uh, being a thief. And what I mean by that is don't be creative. Steal what other people do if, if there's a match to your style and, and repeat it over and over and over again. And, and don't try to recreate the wheel. Don't look for the shortcuts. Turn to somebody and say, help me. Give me guidance. Give me advice. And commit to uh, doing it as you were told, not as you feel comfortable doing. So, so I think it's, it's don't get creative ask for help, be willing to be vulnerable, copy, 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 and, and really finally with all of that, practice. Mm -hmm. and practice everywhere. Practice on your dog, practice on your spouse, practice on your coworkers. But you know, the more practice, the more comfortable you get with the words we're supposed to be delivering and the strategies we should be executing. Sean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, that's, that's, you know, that's been a common thread, common theme throughout a lot of the calls I've done with people, with experts like yourself, is that it's practice, practice, practice. And again, as one guy said, which I loved, it just sums up what you said, as he says, I will raid your tomb and wear your mask. It's, you know, I will take, I will ask, and then, but practice, practice, practice. Sean, unfortunately, I have to, I, I, I could talk all day because you are such a mine of insight and information. Not just that, though, because a lot of people are, are good talkers, but they don't back it up with the behavior, with the results, and you do. And that's what makes you stand out amongst your peers. You, can't, you don't, don't talk the talk, but you walk the walk. And I want to thank you for your time today. Well, well Paul, I want to I thank you for uh, inviting me to, uh, to invest some time with you today. And, and likewise, you know, I could sit and, and wrap with you uh, hours on end. Hopefully we get the opportunity to do so in the next month or so. But, uh, you know, thanks to you. Thanks to the audience for, for tuning in. And uh, I, I really appreciate the time.